Double duty, Josh. Thanks, man. <laughs> Howdy. Welcome back to everybody. All of our students should be back. Back from Winterfest, travels and trips and serving and all that. Just wonderful to begin fully a new semester. It's awesome to be able to gather together and worship. Think of worship as that time where we're realigned with what is most important and most worthy of our attention. You know, the English word were. worship really means worthship. What do we place at ultimate worth in our lives? And this is a time not just to sing and to think, but it is realigning ourselves with the God who is worthy of our greatest attention. It's wonderful to be with you. Um, I uh, just want to take a moment before we dive into our new series and all of that to give you kind of the rest of the story of something I shared a little bit of last week. Thanks to Kelly for putting this together. If you weren't here last week, I shared with you uh, that one of precious people in my life, Miss Betty Perkins, turned 91 Saturday a week ago. We celebrate that. But also, she is an, a model of us living out our vision statement here, especially, well, all of it, but really that living out part where she's never stopped trying to be that disciple who lovingly invites others to be disciples as well. Again, if you weren't here last week, you, you don't know, but if you were, I remind you that she went to a basketball game on Friday, the day before her 91st birthday, and she notices that uh, Coach Buzz Williams is down there in that game watching his uh, son play, and she felt led by the Lord to just go thank him, just give a word of encouragement, not for basketball, that kind of stuff, but for being a Jesus follower who's not afraid to pray for his players and students every day before they go to practice or go into a game. And somehow came up in the conversation, it's her birthday the next day, so she, so she, he got three tickets for her and her sons to go to the Kentucky game. Don't you want her to go to every game now, by the way? She goes to the Kentucky game, and he asked her to pray a blessing over the team. We have footage of that. Would you like to see just a quick three-minute clip of Miss Betty Perkins living out the missions of Jesus? Please show this for us. Sweaty guys hugging you. <laughs> this is Miss Perkins, and today is her 91st. somebody's birthday or somebody's going to have surgery or somebody's going to travel, uh, I believe that uh, your right hand is the hand of blessing. So I'm going to have you pray. And no, I'm going to touch my right hand. Everybody right hand. Right hand, right hand. Right hand, right hand. Right hand, right hand. Okay, ready? Heavenly Father, you are so good. And you are so good to us. You know the names of every boy in this room and of the coach. 
and you have blessed them so sincerely and so heavenly today. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Continue to be with them. Keep them on the right track spiritually and help them with their with basketball. Yes. We love you, Father. Yes. Thank you for loving us back. Yes. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. And thank you for this good coach. I can't I just can't stop without saying thank you, especially for this Christian who prays and who leads and directs and, and loves. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. We're, we're done. And so now everybody puts their right hand up. And if we have a guest, the guest uh, says a word, and you say the word that you want us to say, and then you count to three, and then everybody says the word at the same time, and our hands go down. Okay. We, we'll be gentle, so we won't hurt you. <laughs> oh, okay. So now you're going to tell us what word you want us to say, and then you're going to count Just one, two, three. Any word? Yes, ma'am, any word. Okay. Thankfully, Father, thankfully yours. Huh, that's good. Oh, thankfully, thank Father, thankfully, thankfully yours. Oh, now you count. One, two, three. Thankfully, Father, thankfully yours. Yeah. Isn't that precious? Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Praise God. Thank you, Miss Betty. By the way, you can tell she's got some preacher in her blood. You give her one word, she'd take four. You got that? <laughs> Thank you. So, you're so proud. I, I'm so excited about the study that we're going to do this semester. I think it's great at a new year to say, God, can you give us practical wisdom for pursuing the best possibilities for our lives? And it may sound strange to say, I, I want to study something that will actually lead us to God's wisdom for joy from the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, some of you are like, oh, I have no sense. I've never read that book. Some of you have read the book. You're like, joy, Ecclesiastes, what are we doing with that? I, I want to take a look at this. I think it's a, a priceless place of God's wisdom that propels us into the pursuit of God's joy in our lives. So we're going we're gonna to take a look at that passage. If you weren't here last week, we did, a, not Ecclesiastes, but we did a bit of an introduction to that that set up kind of the nature of these kind of books. So if you uh, want to know a little bit more about that and you weren't here, I encourage you to, to get online and take a look at that. But if you have your Bibles or devices, we're going to read in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, uh, the first 11 verses here. Would you please stand out of respect for God as we read this? And we have this little thing that churches have done for a long time where after we read, we just say thank you to God. I find it interesting once we've done that rhythm for a while, which we have, it's helpful sometimes when you read verses like this that sometimes aren't always obviously wonderful. We still say thank you. It's part of the beautiful practice. Sometimes we thank God. We're thanking you in faith because we trust when you reveal things to us that it matters. Isn't that kind of cool? So it's a, it kind of fits for this one. So let's read the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and then we'll finish with those words. <clears throat> the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. 
The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. And no one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. This is the word of the Lord. may be seated. Please pray with me. Father, I pray as the psalmist did so long ago, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever had a time in your life when you got the backstory to a person or to maybe their accomplishments or something that you already love, you already appreciated? But somehow or another, you got the backstory behind it, and it helped you love and appreciate them or that accomplishment even more. Have you ever had a situation like that? My wife knows that, that I love music, and especially I love classic rock music, and she got me a book written by a guy named John, who is a keyboardist and a lyricist for a rock band, and he tells stories about that and about that practice and that art. And I was reading through it one time, and it was talking about a particular difficult season in his practice of music. And he's telling the story that's true for so many. He'd been doing it for years, hadn't made it big at all, gone one band to the next, has failed here, failed there, tried some things. Finally, he got into a band uh, that went pretty well. They had a song that, that made some money and did some good things. The problem was, like is so often the case, they mismanaged the money they did make And so the band basically was bankrupt. He had debts that he couldn't pay. And the lead singer of what was the band left. So it was done. And again, he was bankrupt with it. They had nothing to do. They had nothing to offer. They had no sense of where to go. And he was finished. He's ready to quit. He's ready to give up. And he calls his father and he said, Dad, Dad, I don't know what to do. I've tried this year after year after year. I love uh, the way he put it. I wrote these words down. He said, my father held my dreams before I could even imagine them. You ever had people in your life like that? He held my dreams before I could even imagine them or see them myself. But I told him, Dad, I'm done. I'm ready to quit. I don't know what to do next. And he said, John, don't stop believing. Got a call from a band that had just recently gotten a relatively new lead singer. His name is Steve Perry. The band is named Journey. And they invited Jonathan Cain to come and be the keyboardist and to write songs with him. And the first album they wrote together was an album called Escape. And it was their best-selling album of all time. And the best-selling song and one of the best songs in rock history is a song called Don't Stop Believing." That wasn't just some random thing he scratched down. It was the story of his life from the wisdom passed down from one generation to the next. When I think about that, I think, have you had those experiences in your life when you got the backstory from someone or some situation or accomplishment that you appreciated, but then you appreciate it even more when you understand what's going on? I want us to think about that when we look at the book of Ecclesiastes. Think about Ecclesiastes that way. 
It is really a way of thinking about it. Not just the Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom for life, but you also get the backstory. Because Ecclesiastes, most of the book, not all of it, but most of the book, is first-person autobiographical. In other words, a way to think about it, this is the journal that we get to read and the story we get to overhear from someone who has experienced wisdom in their life. And we get to read his journal. We get to hear the backstory. By the way, just for a moment, I'll I'll mention this. For those of you that don't like details, some of you may go to sleep already. You can just kind of sleep for the next minute and I'll bring you back in. Some people need a little detail. So let me give you a little background. We'll move on this. And really, I just want to get into the text. But you do need to know that for centuries, good believers in the Bible, in the inspiration of Scripture, have wrestled with who the actual author is. And some people, the tradition of this goes all the way back to Pharisaical Judaism, some people believe, and there's some good reason to believe, that it was Solomon. Others believe it wasn't Solomon, it was another king later in the line of David's lineage. Others believe that it is a wise and powerful person that's in more of the kind of literary and philosophical school of David and Solomon and all of that, collecting some of those and passing it on. They're all different possibilities. And here's my definitive statement on it. I don't know and I don't care. The book doesn't say the name Solomon. It does have language that says, well, it feels like Solomon in some places and other places. doesn't feel like Solomon at all. Give you a couple notes of this again. And really, I want to get to what the book does say. But just for those that that wrestle with such things. Verse 1, one way to read it, it looks like what's obviously Solomon, the words of the teacher, that's who we're going to talk about, the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Well, who's the son of David? Well, Solomon, so that makes sense in that way. But when you read the Old Testament, you look at that Hebrew for the word son, that word son can mean the direct son biologically. It could also mean someone in the biological lineage years later. In fact, you know that already. Because when, it, when we read the word son of David, that is used throughout the Bible more often, not for Solomon, but for whom? Jesus, who is a son much later down the line of David, but he's in the lineage. Did you know also the language could be more symbolic and metaphorical. It can be in the lineage in the sense of um, kind of inheriting the ideas of. Here's an example of that. In Genesis 4, uh, verse 21, it tells of a man named Jubal, J-U-B-A-L. And what do we find there in 421? This is what it says, and I quote, Jubal was the father of all who play stringed instruments or the pipes. Did you get that? He's the father of all who play stringed instruments or the pipes or wind instruments. So anybody play guitar, violin? So Jubal, your daddy. (laughs) Do you see what it's saying? It doesn't mean he's biologically fathered all the people who ever play strings. It means he started something and the lineage is passed on all the way down to Josh and others. So my friend Steve Smith, a professor that I, I play with sometimes, he plays the four-string bass. So Steve is, in this sense of the term, a son of Jubal. My daughter plays a wind instrument. She plays the flute, right? And so she is a daughter of Jubal. Does that make sense? So again, this 
term. It could be literally Solomon. It could be a king in the line of Solomon, or it could be someone following up using Solomon's words in some places or his lineage. It can follow in that lineage. And I don't know, and I don't care. (laughs) Here's what I do want to do. I want to focus on what the Bible does tell us. What do we actually have? What does the Bible say? Two things. Number one, the Holy Spirit inspired two voices in the book of Ecclesiastes, not just one. Did you know that? One is the teacher, and you'll hear it in the first person, and we'll have the journal articles of it. If you flip back to uh, verse 9 of chapter 12, you can read that sometime, and somebody's talking about the teacher in the past, teacher past tense, and is commenting on it. The teacher was wise and did a lot of research, and what he said was true. It's another voice, and the Holy Spirit said we need both of these voices to read the book. I, I think, by the way, that's a hint on how to read the book, by the way. That we take the voice of the teacher and we supplement it with other voices in Scripture. And you put that together and you'll see something cool. All right, long-winded thing to say. Now you can step back into this because I lost some people on the details. I apologize, but it's important to know this. Here's what I say. What does the book tell us that is clear? Here's what's clear. The teacher of the book, that's who we'll use. The word koheleth is the Hebrew for that. Could be with a Q or a K. The teacher, koheleth, that's teacher, is wealthy, powerful, influential, Certainly of upper class high standing, it's connected with some sense of royalty or ruling in some way. But here's the important part of it. The teacher is experienced in life. The teacher has tried a bunch of things, experienced a bunch of things, has sought the wisdom of the Lord, and by the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Here's what's beautiful. The teacher wants to be like Jonathan Cain's father and pass wisdom from one generation to the next that will help us on our journey. This is a powerful, influential, wise, experienced man who is inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us wisdom. You think that's a fitting book for the beginning of the new year. That's why we're exploring this. So what do we get in the wisdom? We'll spend most of our time on this first piece of it, but let's, let's get into chapter 1. What do we notice? Well, you don't have to wait long for the teacher to give us and write down for us a conclusion at the very start. The teacher, right at the beginning, gives us a a, a sort of conclusion here, and I think it's really helpful. What wisdom can we get from this Holy Spirit-inspired, wise, experienced person as we go into a new year, to the next stage of our lives, the next part of your day? You ready for the wisdom? You ready for it? Here it is. Verse 2, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. The classic way this is translated, vanity of vanities. All is vanity or futility of futility. All is futile. Happy New Year. What do you do when you read this book? I've read this book before and I come like the second verse, meaningless. And I'm like, wow, that's a downer. Did you know that rabbis, Jewish rabbis, actually struggled with why is this book inspired? Why is it even in the Bible? How does it fit? And I read it this way and I think, wow, this dude is cynical. This guy is pessimistic. He hates life. Here's the thing. Words really matter. And sometimes it's really helpful for us to read a bunch of different translations to get a feel. You have to know Hebrew or Greek, but you get a feel for what's going on in the original language. There are a few words in the book of Ecclesiastes that are so important. I want to hit pause and I want to put those words up and say, let's understand what this word means and see if it doesn't change our perspective a little bit. When he says the word here that is translated by the NIV as meaningless or the KJV as vanity, the word is hebel. 
H-E-B-E-L, or you can translate it with a V, H-E-V-E-L, right? Hebel. Everything is Hebel. Now, I'm going to talk about it for a moment, but as I tell you what the word literally means, I want to encourage you to start thinking about how different does that even feel and what impression comes in your mind as I describe the word instead of life as meaningless and vanity, which you could translate it that way, but that's interpreting it instead of just giving the word. So let me give you a couple different literal translations of the word. You ready for this? What is Hebel? Hebel is vapor. How does that even feel different right away? How does it make you something, think something differently? Not life is meaningless. Life is vaporous. Life is vaporous. Another, another way you can translate the word. Hebel is mist. Like the mist in the early morning or a fog when you go out to, to fish and the fog is sitting over the lake. Got it? Life is mist-like. One other translation of it. This isn't the deep word that we've used before with Holy Spirit and others. But Hebel is breath. Breath. Right? How does that change? Before I even talk about it, explain it at all. How does it change for you to hear the wise teacher saying life is vaporous, mist-like, and a breath? It's as if the teacher is saying, look, we're going to talk about a lot of things. You've got a lot to do the new year. You've got the next stage of your life. But before you do anything, plan anything, lay anything out, understand this reality. Life is brief. Life is fleeting. And life is elusive. Life is brief. Life is fleeting. And life is elusive. Once we translate it that way and understand it that way, by the way, we see it everywhere in the Bible. That's not only in Ecclesiastes, is it not? For some reason, we don't translate the word Ecclesiastes, but we do elsewhere. Let me give you a few examples of that. So we feel what the teacher is saying right off the bat. And you'll hear it throughout the book. But I really want us to sink into this for a moment. Psalm 144, verse 4 says, Human life is hebel. How does it translate it there? Human life is like breath. Our days are a fleeting shadow. Do you feel the sense of Hebel there? Psalm 39, verse 5. The psalmist is talking directly to God and says, You've made my, my days like a mere handbreadth. The span of all of my years is nothing before you. Now listen to the language. Every person's life is but Hebel. How does it translate it? Every person's life is but a breath. Or this is a powerful image. You know, the book of Proverbs, another book in wisdom literature, ends with this really powerful image of a godly, strong, gifted, powerfully charactered woman. The woman of noble character, we call it, Psalm 31. And it paints a contrast between the enduring, strong character of the woman and something that doesn't endure. And this is the way it describes it, Psalm 31, verse 30. It says, charm is deceptive and beauty is, guess what? Hebel. How's it translated? Beauty is fleeting. So keep trying and keep taking the stuff and do Botox or whatever the case may be. It's going to fade. Beauty's fleeting. But character, it doesn't. It says a woman who fears God is to be praised. That character endures. The clearest statement of this is actually in the New Testament. Obviously, it's a different language. It's in Greek. But I, I, I can almost guarantee if this were written in Hebrew, the word would be Hebel. This is what it says 
in James 4, for all of those times when we make plans and we've got life figured out and we know what happens next, James offers this spirit-inspired wisdom. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Don't you see that this is less of a solid conclusion as it is at the beginning it is a deep reality that the wise one the teacher wants to tell us whatever plans that you make whatever decisions you make whatever directions you take in life start with this understanding and wisdom life is a vapor and a mist and a breath life is fleeting and it is brief and it is elusive Now, if we get this understanding, if you're like me, it changes my whole experience of the book. Because I used to read it, and even if you read it in the way I started reading it the first time, I come across this and I think, man, the teacher is a cynic. I almost think of the teacher as like a spiritual Grinch. (laughs) Who doesn't steal Christmas, he steals joy, right? But that's not the point. That's not what's going on. The teacher isn't cynical about life. He loves it, right? He, he loves it. In fact, he finds life so fascinating that he's going to devote his entire life to exploring it and to reflecting on it and through the power of the Holy Spirit, sharing that wisdom with the next generation. The teacher isn't someone that doesn't find happiness and joy in life. In fact, it's the opposite. We'll talk about this in a few weeks. The teacher seems to experience and enjoy life more than many people do. In fact, the teacher will tell us to enjoy it. We'll talk about that more. So what is the picture here that is talking about? Here's the thing. I used to read the Ecclesiastes in my life, and and, and all the time I thought that the teacher was frustrated because life is bad. It's exactly the opposite. Here's the point. He's not frustrated that life is bad. He's frustrated because life is good, and he can't Hold on to it. Do you get that? Once we understand that, you feel this all the time, don't you? Have you ever found yourself in the middle of a moment? You know what I mean. It's just a glorious, breathtaking, wonderful, this is what life is all about moment. Have you ever been in a moment like that and something inside of you felt sad and you couldn't understand why? I'll share a moment with you when we end Where God walked me through that. I didn't know what was going on. And the Lord taught me that before I came to the book and saw it here. Why is it that we're sad? It's not because the moment is bad. It's the opposite. It's good. And we can't stop it right there. Whenever I read this verse, I think about, I mean, there's all sorts of ones. I think about walking in the woods with my bride and all the different moments. But this one is just kind of cemented in my mind. It was before digital pictures, so I don't know where it is, but somewhere I've got the printed film picture when my daughter was three. Christine was with us. We, we went to Melanie's grandmother's house in Waynesboro, Virginia, central Virginia, just outside of the Appalachian Trail, and it was cold. You understand cold? <laughs> it was cold. But I didn't want to be cooped up in the house, and like 20 minutes away was literally my favorite spot to hike on planet Earth. It's a little place called Humpback Rock in the Appalachian Trail. You can go up, it's not even a very hard hike, but you can get up there. When you get to the top, I tell people it's like an adult jungle gym. You don't have to have ropes, you can just climb and have fun. And I said to Christine, you want to go hiking? She said, yeah, Daddy, let's go. And 
I remember we hiked up, and she was a trooper, man. We stopped and rested when we need to. And I got this picture of her, but it's not just on film. It's in my brain. Three years old, little purple jacket, too big for her. Her cheeks are all red because it's cold outside. She's looking up and smiling at me. I can't hold on to that moment. It goes so fast. I feel a little bit of sadness. I felt it that day. Not because the day wasn't good. It was glorious. It's because I can't hold it. Have you had moments like that? The writer of Ecclesiastes said, don't rush past those moments. We need to understand that life is a breath. Now, we're going to do some practical application of that when we get to chapter 3. But we're going to start just by understanding it for a moment. There is a vaporous, mist-like nature to life. That's part of what Hebel means. Let's take it another direction too, another part of the image that you get in verses 3 through 8. Life isn't just a mist, M-I-S-T. Life is mist, M-Y-S-T. What I mean by that, the guy said it's not just that you can't grasp it, like hold on to it. You can't grasp it and understand it. You can't figure it out. Look at some of the language and imagery he uses in verses 3 through 8. We'll, we'll do more on verse 3 later, but what does he ask? What is the gain for all the toil and labor do we do? You ever ask that? You get up and you go to work again, you go to school again, you go to class again, you go do this again and again. What's, what's the point of all this? What's the gain in this? The word is profit or surplus or labor. It's an economic term. We'll talk more about that later. What's the point of it? Have we asked that question before? And, and then he turns to, we said this last week, uh, the, the wisdom literature or books are not going to quote the Bible as much as they're going to look at God's revelation and creation. And so there's four different things in creation. It says, it talks about generations. One generation comes and that generation goes and the generations come and go. And first service I'm preaching and, 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 and Charlie Pote is sitting right on the front row. Who now with Jake graduating is our best football player on the team that I coach. And I'm like, man, it is so cool. You are the dude, man. And it'll be so fast before you're not the dude anymore. Jake was the dude, he's graduated. Now Charlie's the dude, he's going to graduate. Generations come, generations go. Do you ever feel that, right? And then it talks about the sun. He gets up, the sun rises, sun sets, sun rises, sun sets. And the next part always makes me think of my time in Lubbock. The wind blows north, south, round and round and round it goes. And then the streams, streams come, streams go, but the sea is never full. And what you see is this, I, I can't grasp it, not just can't hold on to it, I can't figure it out. Whenever I look at this creation imagery here, I, I call it the, uh, the dishes, laundry, lawnmower picture of life. You get what I'm saying? What's true about dishes, laundry, lawnmower? You do it, are you done? Uh, you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again. And it makes us say, when we get into the rhythms and the circles of life, every now and then we're invited to say, what's the point? Two problems people face sometimes. Why do we need books like Ecclesiastes? It provokes us to ask questions. Why do we need this? Because some of us, one problem is, we will arrogantly assume we've got it all figured out. And we will do bumper stickers, especially religious people are so good at this. Bumper sticker cliches, just believe, man, just have faith. I mean, it's all about, you know, it is true, all those things are true. But listen, when you're in the mist, those bumper stickers don't work. Sometimes we arrogantly think we've got it all together, and so there's an invitation to, to work on us a little bit, and that's why uh, the book of Ecclesiastes may bother us a little bit because it's sobering truth. The other problem is sometimes we don't have the courage to ask the question in the first place. We just keep going through the cycles. We go to class. We go to work. We go in relationships. We do this thing. We go to church. We never stop and say, God, what's it all about? 
remember, a really pivotal day in my life. It was a couple years after I graduated law school. God had already called me out of the practice of law, and I was doing campus ministry at the time. And I was walking with my friend. I'll say his name is Mike. Mike and I were walking down the road, and I was celebrating the fact that Mike had just reached a form of a pinnacle in the law career, graduated law school, he's worked for a few years, worked for the man for a while, all that kind of stuff, the woman, he had worked for the powers that be, and all of a sudden, as with the language we use, he hung up his own shingle, started his own business, he, he was his own boss. I was like, Mike, this is so great, man, you've reached it, it's awesome, this is what we all talked about in law school if he stayed in law. And I was telling him, you know, I moved to ministry, but I can't tell you how incredible it is, because I I found myself in this place and I realized, not the main reason, main reason is to love that woman and my family, but one of the reasons I'm on the planet is to do this ministry thing. I'm like, this is who I am, not just what I do. I love it. I told him, you must feel that way too. And his face fell. He said, Dean, I don't feel that way about my work. Quick, quick uh, warning here. Some people, that doesn't mean everybody has to do that. Some people are like Paul. They tent make so that they can do their mission in life. That wasn't him. And I was talking in the morning service and Judge Steve Smith was there. Some people are great practitioners of law and they have connected that deeply. They do it for the glory of God. I'm just saying, here's a guy, my friend Mike, hadn't made the connection between what he was doing and even the success he had done and the reason he was doing it. Right of Ecclesiastes says, every now and then, would you stop and ask the question, why? Where are you going with this thing called life? Very quickly, the, the last thing in the couple of verses that you find, it's a wonderful question, verses 9 through 11. It's a question human beings ask all the time, or a search that we do all the time. If you ever notice, there'll be different places in your life that'll testify to this. The human being's never-ending search for something new. Have you ever seen that? I love this picture. Like It's your car, right? I'm, you know, my car is old. My wife's car is old. I like long for a truck. I just want to get in a truck again. And wouldn't it be great? You got the truck. Man, I got what I want. I've been coveting, I confess my sin, Kyler's truck for a long time or since I moved here, right? If you get it and you get it. What's the new thing that you always want? I tell people my garage, as I say this, I want you to imagine in your own mind because it's going somewhere with the book of Ecclesiastes. What is the place that testifies to your never-ending search for something new? For me, it's a garage in my home upstairs office. Because you will see artifact after artifact for my endless search for new things, and then I'm done with them. This is gone now, but for years in our garage, before we moved here, we had two bowling balls and two sets of bowling shoes. Because I thought it was a good idea when I was in campus ministry one time, over the summer to get to know the older folks in our church, and they were in a bowling league, and so Melly and I joined a bowling league. We went and bought a couple bowling balls and bought bowling shoes, and it was so cool. This was our stuff. By the way, they keep stats for that because it's like handicaps, like golf and whatever, so they give you pins if you're really bad. Melly and I were the last two in the whole league, always. I tell people this. This is not a joke or an exaggeration. My golf score is higher than my bowling score, and that's not good for either one. Do you understand that? I'm a triple-digit golfer and a double-digit bowler. That's bad. <laughs> By the way, people hated to play us because if we ever did slightly better, we got so many pins given to us by handicap, we killed you. It was great. But they were gone. I bowled for one season, never did it again. Their golf clubs used to be there. I bowled maybe once or twice a year. You know what the latest thing is now? I bought for my wife a, a fake gift. I mean, I got her a real gift for her birthday, but I also bought her an electric base for her. I can't, I, can't, I can't play the six-string guitar well enough anyway, so I'll just try the bass too. What is it for you? 
The never-ending search. Here's the thing. I want you to think about the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to walk through the garage and the office of the teacher who's going to say, this is what I searched for and found it Hebel. This is what I searched for. This is what I was looking for something new and I couldn't grasp it or grasp it. You get it? But I invite you as we go into that, what is that search for you? So in going with this, here's what I want us to think about. Why is a book like Ecclesiastes so important? Why does even the book tell us we're going to hear all the words of the teacher and then another voice is going to come in and give us a bigger picture? Because I believe, you're going to hear me say this again and again, but I believe that Ecclesiastes asks the questions that only Jesus can actually answer. Ecclesiastes takes us to a place that if we don't let ourselves go, we might not go there. But Ecclesiastes will ask questions and probe things in your heart that ultimately only Jesus can respond to. I'll give you a quick example of this from this text, and then we'll wrap up. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 asks a pretty important question. What's the question it asks? What is new? There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It's a great question. What is it about human beings that we're always looking for something new? Do you think Jesus might have a response to that? Here's the answer, or an answer. Revelation 21, verses 1, 4, and 5. Jesus gave a guy named John a vision, and he said, share that vision with the world. And this is the end of the vision. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Go back two weeks. We talked about the significance of that word. Listen to this. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. What is Jesus' response? Do you hear this? He was seated on the throne said, I am making what? Everything new. Did you know Jesus is leading us to an existence with him at the center of all things that every moment of your life, every breath you take will be like the first time you ever saw her. The first time you ever did that new thing. The first time you experienced that. The first new car smell. But every moment of life will be like that because God makes all things new. That's a response. So here's what I want us to do. For this book, we talked about it last week. Can we practice holding two things in tension at the same time? That both are true. Can we hold together humility and hope? Can we hold together Hebel that says, ah, there's mystery and elusiveness to life, and we don't rush past that, and we don't force other people to rush past it? We're chasing that wind, and it's elusive. And we also hold on to hope because we also do know, some of you said, wind, ruach wind, It's the Holy Spirit of God. And so even though we can't capture the wind and hebel of life, we also have a God who breathes life into our existence every day. Can you hold these things together? Last thing I share with you, God gave me a moment before I got to this book of the Bible that would have told me anyway, where he revealed this to me in some ways. I I did it through a journal. I don't journal often, and I don't write like I'm about to share with you almost ever but one of the things Melly and I like to do is on our anniversaries, we often will go to a bed and breakfast. And this particular time, we went to a B&B in Amarillo. And it was particularly known for when you go in this huge backyard, uh, the woman there who ran the B&B was an incredible gardener. And she had kind of sculpted and curated the whole place for the experience of those who stayed there. And Melly was still getting ready with a couple things. And I went out and I sat down in the garden and I was just blown away by the things that were going on, and just the, one of those moments of this incredible wife, and she's in my life, and I've got to be in this great place. And then that weird feeling hit me, 
And I turned it into a prayer. I'm like, God, what's going on? I'm in this incredible moment. I don't want it to end, but why do I feel this weird sadness? And God answered me through my own writing. And I want to share that with you as an example for me that the Lord taught me how to hold some things in tension and even surprised me when he did that. I called it prayer in Texas garden. And I was riffing off of, because I'm sitting in a garden, Jesus saying, I'm the vine and my father's the gardener. And so this is, I just started as a prayer and I asked him, and before I was finished writing, he answered me. I was like, oh Lord, creator and sustainer of life, as I sit here in the gardens, and it's cool, one of which was appropriately named Eden. She'd named her different garden. I watch with appreciation and respect how the owner circles the garden. She purges the weeds, remarking with personal delight how she knows each variety of flower by name. And then she stoops down to allow the fish to nibble playfully at her fingers. I strain to capture in words what sitting in this place does to my anxious soul. Panorama of colors, the powerful scent of roses, the steady, peaceful cadence of the fountain. The hand-painted sign she'd put above the lattice shouts to me, take time to smell the roses. I'm trying, I want to holler back. And I feel tonight like I did at that Colorado sunset, the first time I ever drove into Colorado and the mountain exploded in front of me, the sunset was coming down and I felt the same feeling. And then he taught me as I wrote, my delight at its beauty and wonder is mixed with a hint of despair, perhaps desperation because I can't hold on to the wonder and the joy and the refreshment. Why? Because the sun sets and the day in the garden ends. Just pause there for a moment. Have you ever had that moment? Like he taught me as I was writing it, that was, I didn't know why I was sad. I realized, oh, it's because the moment will end. And I thought that was it. That would have been enough because God answered my prayer. But for some reason, I kept writing, and I discovered as I wrote, I was, I was in Hebel, and I held on to that, but he gave me hope, and this is the end of what the Lord led me to write. It's not like some inspired thing. It's just what he taught me. So I sit and drink it in, trusting that there is another gardener purging the weeds in my world, Arranging with care each aspect of life here and intimate enough to stoop down and play with his creatures. And so I trust, Father, that you are not finished with sunsets or gardens or even my insignificant life. That was my experience of what I then found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Can we hold that intention? Some of you just need to sit there and say, oh, it's wonderful and it's fleeting and I just need to I need to sit in that for a moment. Some of us need to say, oh, yes, God. And yet the one who created all of that is still breathing and still giving the wind and the breath and the life of God to us. Isn't that wonderful? Father God, we are so grateful for your incredibly creative ways that you bring wisdom into our lives. Give us ears to hear how not just the teacher of Ecclesiastes, but the teacher of teachers and the Lord of lords and the King of kings bends down and brings life into our world. Thank you for giving us hope and the ability to just sit and struggle with you through the mysteries of life. In the glorious resurrected name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we sing?